Oh God. Like I, that one was, that was painful to me. And I thought it's just, we've all been in that cab with that ass. Yes. We've all been in that cab. everyone welcome back to america's hottest movie chat show cinema ball i'm here with my co-host and opponent carolyn pettit hey carol hey 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 this is the first episode of the second round of your favorite film freak out if you stuck with us through the highs and lows of round one you will know that carolyn scored a sneaky field goal by making us watch hard target <laughs> So we all got to watch JCVD punch that snake. So she is currently ahead three to zero and always ahead in our hearts. Uh, <laughs> but I do feel like this is my round, Caro. So I am going to bring the yeah. heat. I am, you know, as I said in our in our uh, mid-season report or whatever we called it. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm definitely feeling like I have to play some serious defense here because you, as your goal film, uh, The Legend of Billie Jean, you have chosen a film that really requires me to be on my guard because it's got so many talented and prolific folks involved with it. So good on you for, for making me do my work here as the defender. Absolutely. Yeah. So what it is is that I'm hungry. You know, when uh, in sports, when, when someone like has to come from behind, they mm-hmm. say that person is hungry. Like I am hungry to, yeah. to get victory, you know? So I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be vicious. So in case you don't know, cinema ball is a ridiculous excuse for Carol and I to talk about movies. Our goal in the game is to connect one movie to another through actors, directors, catering directors, whatever. Uh, Our goal movie is Carol said. You better not pull some craft services (laughs) stuff on me. I will do whatever it takes to win, Carol. Yeah, you will. (laughs) So as Carol said, our goal movie in this round is the 1985 teen classic, The Legend of Billie Jean, and I am on offense. She was a fugitive to the police. A sensation to the media. And a symbol of courage to young people everywhere to fight for what's right. Where is she? Everywhere. The Legend of Billie Jean, directed by Matthew Robbins, featuring Pat Benatar's hit song, Invincible, rated PG-13. Carol's on defense, so she got to choose our starting film. She decided to slip on her Doc Martens, smoke a few clove cigarettes, and return us to the land of 1990s indie darling Jim Jarmusch via his 1991 anthology film, Night on Earth. At the end of this episode, I get to return Caro's cinematic serve with a movie of my own, but for now, it's time to turn on the meter for this late night cab ride head uptown. Caro, tell us a little bit about Night on Earth. Yeah, so, you know, as you mentioned, it is a 1991 anthology film by Jim Jarmusch, uh, you know, whose more recent work includes films like uh, Only Lovers Left Alive, um, you know, very, very prolific, well-respected American kind of indie uh, uh, filmmaker. Um, What makes Night on Earth unique? Well, many things, but this is a film in which each of the five uh, sort of short films that, that come together to make up the whole is set in uh, in a different taxi cab in a different city. And so ostensibly all taking place on the same night um, on Earth. Uh, and so you have um, initially a story set in Los Angeles, uh, Winona Ryder uh, playing a cab driver named Corky who finds um, studio, you know, movie-making executive Gina, Gina Rollins in her cab. Uh, you have in New York... Um, 
uh, Armin Mueller-Stahl as a as a uh, not very good <laughs> cab driver, not very uh, road you know safe cab driver who. Um, picks up uh, Giancarlo Esposito um, and then you know you have uh, uh, one sequence uh, set in, in Paris, one set in Rome and the fifth and final uh, takes place in Helsinki and um, you know just so even before we sort of jump into the particular like specifics of any of these stories I want to say that I just think as so as a visual uh, uh, film um, like this movie really works because the bulk of the movie is going to be, the, it's the same shot um, mm-hmm. where you have a, you're, you know, you, you have the, the driver in the foreground, um, like on the right side of the frame. And then the passenger uh, sort of in the background um, in the back seat, uh, you know, on the, on the left side of the frame. And this, you know, format um, just really, uh, uh, lets you observe like the faces of these actors, right? And I mean, these are by and large, I mean, such uh, uh, actors with such fascinating faces to begin with that I just found like, wow, you know, what a great just sort of uh, concept for a film that's it's so you know intimate, um, yes. just inherently, and it just really uh, uh, lets you um, feel like you're kind of there in you know in the in the moment and in this in the space with these with these characters yeah I was okay so <laughs> those of you who listen to our mid-season report will know that I expressed some delight um, when I you know thought about getting to talk about this movie it turns out that the movie I thought was oh. night on earth was I think I conflated night on earth with um Oh God! Earth um, girls, Earth girls are easy. <laughs> and uh, Lost Highway, a <laughs> film with uh, with David Byrne, and I'm blanking oh. on the name of it right now. But in my uh, mind, there was like mixed up tr- together, like true stories or yes, something like yes. that. Yes. So I mm-hmm. think you know, like in my mind, Night on Earth was kind of you know a third Night on Earth, a third True Stories, and a third some other you know random film, whatever. So yeah. I was really excited. After the Winona Ryder segment, uh, when they're in Los Angeles, when that ended and we go to New York and I was like, I, I haven't seen this before. I thought I had seen this movie before, but it turns out I, I hadn't, right? Uh-huh. So I just want to talk a little bit about the experience of watching this film because this film really pays back such dividends if you are willing to consume it on its schedule and at its rhythm, right? Yes. So Jim Jarmusch, as a filmmaker, talks about um, kind of like real life rhythms. His, his, his movies are not particularly like plot driven. They are very much character driven. And so that means that conversations happen at a speed that can feel false if you are used to the kind of accelerated rhythm of mainstream film, right? And so it took me a minute um, to get to get used to that and to get out of the headspace of thinking like, you know, is something going to happen? You know, should we be heading towards a climax in this scene? Is there going to be like, you know, a payoff in terms of jokes or, you know, action or whatever? That's that's not what this film is about. And once you kind of surrender to that feeling, 
it feels like you are on one of those late night cab rides that we've all taken, right? That kind mm-hmm. of like late night trying to head home. You exist in a in a different space. The city is yes. different. You yeah. are different. You know, time, you're not experiencing time in the same way. And so although there are things about the film that <laughs> that I was like, okay, I'm ready for this to be over. Notably the segment in Rome where I thought I would have committed murder if I was in that <laughs> cab. I wouldn't be a victim of Roberto Benigni's uh, <laughs> extended, you know, <laughs> hyper uh, dialogue there. I would have committed murder. But right. uh, but apart from that, like it just, it hangs together so incredibly well. And and I think, you know, like even the, the film's opening itself, like the opening credits as we, you know, pan over this globe, uh, right? Like the way it looks and Tom Waits kind of carnivalesque hurdy-gurdy music, mm-hmm. music um, prepares you in a way for something that's going to be just slightly left of center. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's right. It's it's the 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 carnival of human life, right? Yeah. It, it is sort of what we're what we're being set up for, and the sense that you know by using the that actual kind of rotating globe uh, of Earth, you know, this kind of makeshift globe of Earth. In the in the in the very beginning, you know, you, you kind of it kind of sets you up to realize that well, these are five, these are only five stories, uh, you know, in in a in a in a cavalcade of human experience that is so much so much larger, right, than what we're about to see. Yeah. Um, but so yeah, so you know, Tom Waits' music that that it it, it it's it's you know it's the music of it's the music of of beat up. Things and yes. used things, <laughs> and and so it, you know it, we we start with Los Angeles, but it is not at least not initially the glamorous, wealthy, right, you know, right. the Lo- Los Angeles. It is the Los Angeles of little, you know, of bodegas and yeah. and, and uh, little, you know, fast food right. joints and stuff like that. We are we meet Corky, played by Winona Ryder, who's driving her like station wagon of a cab around but juxtaposed with this like these early introductions to Corky are shots and scenes of Gina Rollins as a woman named Victoria Snelling which is a name that itself just sort of exudes you know um, maybe uh, wealth or privilege you know it just has that kind of ring to it Um, getting off a plane a private jet no less and and pulling out a cell phone at a time when cell phones were like very much right. a mark of like status and exclusivity and so there's a fascinating thing that happens where they're both you know they're they're in different uh scenes they're in different shots for a while and then you know Corky makes her drop off of these two you know these like metalheads uh, from from a band named Utensil or something, and um, and and so she's like outside on a payphone calling in trying to figure out like what is she gonna do next, and then into her world into the frame and into the world steps Victoria Snelling, who you know is now kind of in Corky's world right she has emerged from like the experience of the private jet and everything right. and she's now there next to this young woman who's got the the this beat up you know station wagon cab and so circumstance kind of flings these two women who 
who come from very two very different experiences of Los Angeles, you know, t- together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I loved the, the framing of this film in cabs because even though you do have someone like, you know, um, Gina Rowland's character, you know, coming from that, that private jet. And then in the, um, the vignette in Paris, you have these um, uh, Cameroonian diplomats. Nevertheless, there's uh. something about cabs, right? And especially like late night cabs. Like you're, you're not going to a place of business. You're not being dropped off, you know, downtown at a skyscraper, right? There's something so down market about those late night cabs, you know? And so the insistence upon like the grubbiness of the vehicle um, yeah. that's, that still works, you know, is still getting these people where they need to do and is doing this kind of phenomenal magic of being bringing people from all these different walks of life together. Yeah. It, but it's it, it refuses to be shiny um, and it refuses to kind of, you know, like wear a gloss. I think about just like the fact that this movie is made in 1991 This movie doesn't get made, let alone like, you know, the fact that the indie movie landscape has changed like radically since the 90s. But this particular movie doesn't get made in the year of our Lord 2018 with our culture of Uber and Lyft, you know, where where we demand that the people who pick us up have, you know, immaculate, you know, like Lexus cars, you know, but we're going to pay them less than we would actually pay for a cab. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and that, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, with the Corky story in particular, the first story. So Corky, you know, she is, she wants to be a mechanic. She comes from the world of manual labor, right? right. Her brothers are mechanics. We, she, we see she's got this wrench, you know, and other tools like hanging off of her, uh, her waist and stuff. Like she is, you know we can see her getting grimy getting greasy so at the end of the of the of the their time together um you know uh Gina Rollins offers Corky like the opportunity of a lifetime right she is like I want you know she's yeah. trying she's been searching for a, an actor to fill a certain role and struggling like not finding anyone who's maybe quite right and she has this flash of inspiration oh my god Corky is perfect you know I want to make you a movie star I want to make you know what make your your dreams come true but Corky Corky's dreams are already set Corky dreams of being a mechanic she wants to live in that world and what made me so what made me sad as as that story ended and Corky drives off in her station wagon is that I wanted so much to feel personally. I wanted so much to feel like, you know what? Corky's going to be all right. She's yeah. she's got it. She's she knows what she wants to be. She knows what she wants to do. She's going to be all right. But I knowing what I know of where we are now and um and the the reality of as you said like Uber and Lyft and stuff and the 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 fading of the kind of that world that Corky sees herself in. Yeah. Like I, I don't, really know that she's going to be all right. So, yeah. yeah. Although, you know, I, I I am gratified that we do have her saying no because in yeah. in the in the mainstream version of this film, of course, she says yes and her life changes. Uh, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, I was glad that we got that. I I I couldn't take my eyes off young Winona Ryder. Like I just remember when she looked so fragile isn't the word because she she never looked fragile but there was something so unearthly about her particular Uh kind of beauty um 
and to have her, you know, dressed up like this this tomboy, you know, like it was it was just so perfect, you know, her yeah. kind of small body um, contrasted with Gina Rowland's kind of you know very like kind of old school Beverly Hills kind of glamour um, yeah. in this movie. I have to say though, in the scene, I, I don't want to spend the whole time talking about the LA part, although I have to say, no. of all the cities that we saw at night, perhaps it's because you know I'm a Los Angelino, but there's something about LA at night that just, I, I don't know what it is. It just hits every single one of my buttons. I, I loved, I loved it. I loved the 24 hour donut shops and the, yeah. you know, slightly disreputable looking gas stations that we passed by. There was just something about like yeah. LA at night. Is it the noir thing? I don't know, but I was so into it. And I think Jim, Jar- we'll move on from LA, uh, the LA segment in a moment, but I, I do want to say a few more quick things about it myself as well is yeah. Like, Jarmusch is so good at capturing that kind of beauty of American cities. Like uh, Only Lovers Left Alive, I think it does a similar thing with Detroit, where it just makes you see the beauty in the way the city is is kind of run down, yeah. right? He, um, and uh, yeah, you know, and I just felt like I felt like. I felt at home in a sense with that Los Angeles. Like it reminded me of how when I was young, you know, we, we, we sort of, we lived not too far from the Van Nuys airport mm-hmm. and like a thing, you know, we had like no, we had very little money and like a thing we would do for fun. My mom and I, would, you know, is we'd go like just park by the Van Nuys airport and watch planes like take off and land. Yeah. And like, that was like a thing. And you know, it's like it reminds me of like that that Los Angeles. And yeah. but the other thing I, I I also just quickly want to touch on is that Corky's um, um, decisions of like oh she says that's not a real life for me or I have my my life planned out. It for whatever reason it made me flashback to um, to a memory and this has to be from like twenty years ago now or something. I don't remember exactly when it was, but but um, you know <laughs> uh, uh, speaking of like hindsight and and everything i remember seeing johnny depp on i i think it was charlie rose uh it was certainly some you know sort of serious interview program um and you know at one point he and and you know there's a certain cultural connection between winona Ryder and johnny depp right Right. they were they were this like uh this famous you know winona forever wine yeah winona forever right um and I remember Johnny on the show, uh, so Charlie Rose or whoever the interviewer was asked him like, um, you know, uh, what, you know, what would you, do? would you keep making movies if they stopped offering you like interesting, if the movies you got to make stopped being interesting? Because this is when like pretty much every film he was in was something like art, you know, yeah. respect, you know, respectful in an artistic sense, right? It was not, it was, they were not so much, com- it was like what's eating Gilbert Grape and, right. and, um, the uh, uh, fear and loathing in Las Vegas, and you know that that whole kind of period of, of of Depp's filmography, and and he said, I remember this very well. I remember he said that he would he'd rather you know rather than making uninteresting movies, he'd rather go back to working at a gas station, and, <laughs> and like uh, clearly that has not been yeah. the path that he has chosen, you know. But also like uh, that you know it just reminded me of like yeah like Corky is in that world of gas stations and like, that's what she considers real. And, uh, and yet the world will increasingly over the next like 10, 15, 20 years kind of erode in some ways, the, the viability and, and, and the reality of, of that, 
that realm in which she exists. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Huh. And I mean, and it's it's not to suggest that, you know, Corky as, you know, quintessentially, you know, herself as she is and as, as certain as she is of what she wants, you know, she she is nevertheless like very young and the movie is very gentle with her youth. And so when she talks about like wanting to have a family, um, you know, but, you know, wanting to take it slow, finding the right guy, whatever. And I was like, Corky, it's because you're queer. You're never going to find the right guy. But, uh, uh, so, yeah, but when she of. talks about like, you know, but I want to uh, I want to have, you know, a bunch of kids, but but just boys. Right. Because I, she can't even imagine, uh, right. you know, a, a position in which she has baby girls who yeah. are like her. Right. Right. Like, right, I think right. there's a part of her that recognizes like how how unique she feels and how, as you say, you know, how much lack of viability there is for women to kind of exist in, in that particular space. It's just, you know, presumed to be easier to, to be a boy and to raise boys. Yeah. Yeah. So. Anyways, um, LA section. Yeah. Great. And like I said, in terms of, you know, the, um, the, the cities at night that we saw LA was, I think probably my favorite. It just, it just felt like home. Um, but sure. moving on to New York, yeah. And yeah. Giancarlo Esposito, who, along with Delroy Lindo, I feel like they need to be getting way more work than they're getting. I agree. Those are two actors yeah. where I just feel like you need to be in minimum two projects a year that I'm watching. Yeah. Just and I mean, amazing. Right. And, you know, so, I mean, Giancarlo Esposito, he... Uh, you know, he had a substantial role on on Breaking Bad mm-hmm. for a few seasons. Good for him. But, but um, yeah, this film, you know, reminded me of uh, he had. So in this, you know, again, this is 91. He's he's younger, but he just had he just has such a. Uh, uh, an energy like a yes. crackling a crackling energy to him that uh, is just is just captivating um, and there's such a wonderful wonderful contrast between his kind of um, yeah like this kind of barely controlled almost like enthusiasm and energy and um, Armin Mueller Stahl as yes. this um, you know <laughs> German uh, taxi driver named Helmut um, who's very kind of uh, very quiet, very kind of, he just likes to, he's like observing and processing and trying to like take things in and, and, yeah. and make sense of things. And, and so just that, that, that dynamic between them, um, it, you know, it works really well. It works really well. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I love Armin Mueller stahl and I, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the role that, uh, is very much associated, um, with him for me is still um, Eastern Promises, where mm. he carries that just frightening, quiet menace. Right. <laughs> Excuse me, but he is such a wonderful actor. And to see, like, uh, he's so soft and receptive to, yes. to everything, you know, to, yeah. to every experience, to, to, you know, Brooklyn and to, you know, Rosie Perez's loud ass in the background okay. with her squeaky voice and, you know, checking out the fact that his hat and, <laughs> and Yo-Yo's hat are the same thing. Yeah. Like, he's just so... I wanted to be in yeah. a cab with them. Like of the of the five cabs that we saw over the evening, I probably would have had the best time in that cab. That like I, I imagine you would have been laughing the entire drive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's that that gag. You know, it's so great. So uh, uh, 
um, John Carlos character, uh, Yo, we, you know, whose name we learn is Yo-Yo. You know, he keeps calling Helmut Helmet, right? Yes. He's like, he keeps calling him Helmet, and he's like, that's like calling somebody lampshade. Yeah. You know, it's like this <laughs> object, right? It's like it's a thing you put on your head. And then when when Helmut asks him, like, well, what's your name? And he says his name is <laughs> Yo Yo. <laughs> yes, it's yes. so great. Oh my god! And like Helmut is like. But that's that's the that's a thing. This is a toy, yeah. you know, or whatever. And he's like, no, no, yeah. man. Yeah, no, like, it's that, different. No, yeah. it's totally different. Ah, uh, it, yeah. it was so good. It was great. And I mean, just from the beginning of that vignette, you know, where Giancarlo Esposito, Yo-Yo, is trying yeah. to hail a cab in absolutely. Right. Like, like he <laughs> the only reason he's in the Helmut's cab is because no one else will stop for him, you know? And that's yeah. real, you know? So you oh, have yeah. these two dudes, you know, who are kind of thrown together by fate, but who are able to have, like, a real actual human connection um Mm -hmm. you know and and we're so glad that that they met each other and then you know in the the way that the vignette ends where you know (laughs) helmet Uh. with with his bad driving self you know takes off um not knowing how to really drive a car not knowing where the hell he's going and you're you're worried about him yeah in the the few minutes that we've gotten to spend with him I, i felt so protective i was worried uh you know that if if this trip itself, the ride back to Manhattan didn't get him, then then the the mean streets of New York as a yeah. whole might be too much for a person like him. Yeah. But then the lights hit his face. It, it, it God's take it takes care of you know fools and children, right? Like we just know yeah. he's going to be okay. Yeah, we do. Uh, and yet, you know, um, I mean, yeah, I just think that this. That was the moment, that time that we spend with Helmut when he's alone again mm-hmm. after dropping off Yo-Yo. And, you know, Yo-Yo does what he can. He's like, do you know where you're going? Yeah. Do you know how to get back? And, you know, but of course, Helmut's not making real sense of the right. directions and everything. And just that time that we spend with Helmut in the cab uh, when he's alone again, it, it, it made me re- think about how much compassion this film has for for its characters. And, right. and, and it wants us to care for them as they go back into the world alone and yes. and by doing that it seems you know it, it it seems to me to have a a just a very uh you know human it, by lifting up like the the individual experience of this person alone in new york you know it, there's the the sense in which it, it it then sort of lifts all of us up as people who are sometimes lonely or solitary or you know what have you it's it's right but because of the way in which it's trying to tell these uh, this range of stories about this range of people um and i do like i do take issue a little bit with the fact that the film is called uh night on earth and it's but you know what do we get we get two oh yeah two two american cities like two european cities and one like you know scandinavian city or something it's like there's no karachi there's no yeah there's um, there, nothing in africa in fact we right. the the we, the camera tr- slides up the globe you know over right. the entire continent of africa i don't even know that we spend too much time uh, even passing over asia except in the very you know initial credit uh run that that opens the film and i was like yeah i i get it you know i understand that you know jim jarmish chose the cities um to feature based kind of upon who he wanted to work with you know yes, so yes, in paris yes. and helsinki etc you know but i was like there is a part of me that's like night on earth but 
really like there's no dakar no tokyo you know no beijing come on yeah uh, so, but, so then from New York, yes, we, we do go to Paris where we are in the cab of this, uh, black, uh, French, uh, cab driver. And yeah, as you mentioned earlier, he's driving around these two, these two like diplomats and it's, it, it's not racism because they're black, but, but like, I don't know how to, I, I'm at a loss for how to talk about it because they are, they are judging him as being a, 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 a lower uh, black person. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, I, I think certainly here in the West, um, there is this criminal inability to differentiate between the many nations and peoples in yes. Africa, right? Yeah, and so yes. one of the things that's you know great about this film is that you know it it doesn't allow for that, right? So you have these diplomats who I believe are from Cameroon, if I'm remembering correctly, you know, making fun of uh uh. Isaac DeBunkley's character, whose name I'm forgetting, but who's from the Ivory Coast. And yeah, right. there are there are tremendous, you know, not rivalries, but tensions between various nations in sure. Africa, you know, in the same way that there have there's a whole conversation to be had about the tensions between like African immigrants and African-Americans. Um, so yeah, but they're, they're very patronizing towards him. There's definitely something with class going on there and that he is in a service position driving them around. They are representatives of a higher class. Um, and they are, you know, flashy about it and, and very loud and vocal about it. Um, and they, you know, they continue to call him little brother and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, be, you know, quite dismissive and rude to his face until he actually kicks them out of the cab. And, you know, yeah. so you, you start the vignette in Paris. Um, and by the way, Isaac DeBanco is one of the most beautiful people oh I've my ever God. seen in my life. Uh, and he is lit like yes. something magical in this I'm, film. I'm so, I'm so glad you mentioned that because, you know, it, it's so true that, that so often uh, black people are not mm-hmm. lit well, lit properly on on camera on screen yeah. but oh my god i mean yes like the the lighting in the, in that cab like um the way we the, the way we i mean his face mm-hmm. his face was certainly uh, my favorite face to just observe right. um in this film because you know there's so much going on there there's anger uh, that's kind of tightly controlled and reined in um uh, but yeah, I mean, oh, yes, absolutely. Like, I don't know what what to say about it other than just it was. It's a beautiful face. It's um, absolutely, and, and 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 the you know the irritation, the frustration, yes. the hurt um, on yes. his face as he listens to people you know who look like him, and to you know as we will see at the end, to white French people it mm-hmm. might as well be the exact same as him. There's no differentiation between yes. any African nations, right? You know, to have these people who should have some common cause with him you know be as patronizing and dismissive we see the toll that it takes on him and so you know initially you know I'm, I'm sympathetic to him right but then when uh his the the actual like focus of that vignette uh comes mm-hmm. into play or the, the passenger um who is a blind woman then you know yeah. i'm becoming really really uncomfortable with his character because he is doing the 
most creepy staring. He asked her the most inappropriate questions. Well, exactly. It, it is horrifying to sit there. And as I say, you know, like this is happening with kind of that feel of real time, right? So you're uncomfortable and you have to sit in your discomfort and anxiety for this woman who, you know, resists being infantilized in any way because of her blindness. Yeah. But nevertheless, you're like, you, you are... And like any woman is sort of, you know, unable to stop this from happening. Right, right. But, but there's that fascinating kind of, you know, based on his appearances, people put him into boxes that are that are uh, uh, incorrect, that are wrong, that are harmful. But And then, yes, he has this blind woman as a passenger. And his questions to her, like they are in some ways, you know, what they reminded me of. In a, in a sense is is the kinds of questions that um that you know like the the shit white girls ask to black girls oh, of right. just coming just coming from such a place of like ig- of like ignorance and also of othering yes, right yes. um because you know he asks things like um you know uh yeah like what's it like in bed like how do you yeah. know who's who's next to you like he doesn't understand that there are other ways of seeing a person or of sensing a person's body or beauty than just through through the eyes right right um and um so yeah i mean just all all that that whole line of inquisition and and i mean the way that she just kind of shuts it try you know tries to shut it down every step of the way but also she is trapped in that cab and she she can't just like walk away from it um uh yeah, as you say, it's uncomfortable, but it's also it's also perceptive. I mean, yes. it is because, you know, like like as soon as she is out of the cab, right? Uh, like the the very next thing that happens to him, right, is he he gets into a fender bender and the person who who uh he hits says something like, "I'm not racist, but you drive like a black." Yeah. Um yeah. And so, like, it's 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 all about those ways in which people are categorized or you know grouped based on things that um that are like they're just false things from which to extrapolate a person's like entire humanity or experience or or whatever, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And I think you know it would have been very easy to continue to um uh to have the his that driver's character continue to be um you know kind of sympathetic and to be you know kind of long suffering that would have been a very easy thing to do but to show the ways in which he is both you know dismissive and you know judgmental um and also the victim of that you know was was very smart right. i also loved how you know for me this was the shift in the film where you realize you don't have to like the characters, yeah. you know, um, we're, we're very still unused to, to films, to TV shows, to books in which we are not, you know, supposed to like the character we, that we may disagree with them, you mm-hmm. know, um, that, that can feel very distancing. And I think, you know, it would, this came sort of perfect. Like, of course, you know, based upon the way the movie is structured, um, and according to time zones, like we had to go from, from New York to Paris to Rome. Yes. But I also yes. think like thematically and, you know, via the narrative, Paris comes at a great point because I had such a great time in New York with Yo-Yo and Helmut, 
but mm-hmm. there are more stories out there. <laughs> like there are all kinds of people out there and none of us is all one thing or another. And you know, in the space of 20 minutes, we see one guy being discriminated against, you know, having to deal with some assholes and then being the asshole himself. It, exactly. It's life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So I don't know how much I have to say about Rome and the Roberto Benigni. Oh God! Uh, like that segment. one was that was painful to me, and I thought it's just we've all been in that cab with that asshole. Yes, we've all been but, in that cab. I, you know, and yet, like, I mean, I, I, I think, I think it's such a great showcase for Benigni's uh, uh, manic. Uh, energy, which can, which depending on the film and the context it's in, can can be, uh, and you know, for me, it can be uh, entertaining, it can be wonderful, or it can be like just obnoxious. But um, you know, so we spent a lot of time actually with him alone in the cab, just talking to himself yeah and talking to you know having full-on like conversations with himself like oh oh genius hotel what a name for a hotel like oh you know here's yeah. uh you know here's uh albert einstein oh albert einstein say hello to you know picasso whatever whoever the people he picks as geniuses and he's just having a whole <laughs> right scenario play out in his head and and um i think my favorite just little detail like little little detail of the whole roberto benini uh segment is that when he's He's talking to the radio dispatcher, uh, uh, you know, like, yeah. so, you know, when uh, one person stops talking uh, on those, there's the, the kind of the, the, the buzz of static or whatever, the bzz, yeah, right? And he, and Roberto Benini, like, he says his thing, like, and what he's saying is ridiculous, of course, he's, he's but he's talking about... He's a, he's asking for information about where to go to pick up his next his next passenger, but he's but the way he's phrasing it is like, okay, so where shall I meet you so that we can make love or whatever? Like, of right. course he's just. But at the end of every statement of his, he just goes like he just yeah. with his lips, <laughs> with his mouth, he he makes a sound, and it, it's like that to me was just the, like the one thing that kind of stuck with me from that whole yeah. that whole sequence. Yeah, the the one thing I have to admit, I was. I was um, uncomfortable as once the the priest who is not a bishop, you know, um, very much not a bishop. Yes, yes. you know, I think it, it comes. He's he's already started to have his heart attack, but I don't think we know that he's dead yet. Um, yeah. And Roberto Benini drives um, past these two sex workers on oh, the right. street, right? Yes. And I remember thinking, like, I'm not sure if the film is trying to. Uh, other them in a way right. that I'm not comfortable with, you know, um, to sh- yeah. like as a way to kind of highlight like how ridiculous Roberto Benini's character is. Like, oh, look at the kind of people that he hangs out with and who find him charming. I wasn't quite sure how to read it. I might go back and watch that if I can stand it. Because yeah. honestly, like Roberto I- Benini's energy is a lot for me, and I say that recognizing that my energy is a lot for people. But I was exhausted by him. I mean, I, it's probably just my my sort of predisposition to thinking that Jarmusch has a charitable outlook Mm -hmm. toward humanity in general and toward the outsiders in particular, that I don't think he intended the, the, uh, those sex workers to be, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, images of, uh, of ridicule though. Certainly 
that doesn't mean that the film is successful in that regard and that many viewers may not have interpreted them as such, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, but, maybe it was yeah. simply because, like, the, the, um, the, the tone of that segment itself is so over the top that had yes yes maybe yes. had they appeared elsewhere because I, like you I don't you know impute any ill will specifically to to Jim Jarmusch I think you know he's he's pretty right on um in in most ways so maybe it was just because tonally I thought like no uh, the fact that these women are here doing what they're doing what they're doing is not ludicrous who they are is not ludicrous so I don't want mm-hmm. that to get lumped in with the rest of the kind of you know absurdity of this particular vignette so like I said I'm yeah. not sure you know where I came down on that no it's no just, no you know, something that's no, with th- me it's, it's absolutely worth worth speaking about in the, in the context of this film mm-hmm. um 100% <laughs> um yeah so 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 Roberto Benini happens oh yeah. also I want to say that Rome um just uh, to me, if there's, and it's probably partially because I've spent so little time in cities like that, you know, in 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 Europe uh, at all, mm-hmm. that um, that for whatever reason, Rome, seeing his his tiny little cab just like vroom down these like narrow you know streets and everything, um, that for me was the was the city that just visually I found the most kind of. Uh, captivating, right? Like, oh, I want to, yeah. I want to stroll down these, you know, cobblestone streets and, and and things like that. I just found, and I love the way that Jarmusch, whether it's New York or Rome or wherever, you can tell that when he's just doing those kind of exterior shots, those urban, you know, the shots of the environment, that he deliberately wants to get, like, if there's graffiti or something, if there's like marks of you know people's presence that that uh that that are that are what some people would call like ugly or or something like he wants those in the shot like he 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 doesn't want sterile cities he wants cities that right. that have that feel lived in yes, right yeah um so okay so so moving on to the fifth and, and final uh segment which is in um in Helsinki um you have uh, uh, this uh, cab driver uh, named Mika, I think was his mm-hmm. name, uh, who picks up uh, these these three men. They're obviously like completely wasted. They've been out drinking for you know who knows how long, and there's um, and it's because one of them got laid off and uh, from his job and had just a really awful day in general. Yeah, um, and basically like. For the most part, this segment becomes a uh, about um, the cab driver telling his own story of woe and and sorrow and grief, and it's you know there's this very kind of um, this uh, this thing that I think maybe maybe has happens more between men or whatever, but that I kind of dislike but I think it rings true where Mika is like where they, he hears about um, the Aki Aki's the person who's been laid off he hears about Aki's day and he's like that's not you know that's yeah. not so bad like <laughs> it's like like we have to we have to play like you know the grief Olympics or whatever yeah like Aki's having a really shitty day like let's acknowledge that he's having a really shitty day right but then but then um, and I don't I, I'm not familiar with the actor who plays Mika from anything I don't know him um, but um but it is very compelling to watch this kind of, you know, emotionally closed off uh, uh, man 
uh, uh, tell this story of uh, of you know grief and 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 loss. Um, yeah. So uh, this the the segment in Helsinki was my favorite of mm-hmm. the five, and I wasn't prepared for that to be the case. I didn't expect for it to be the case, but it was. And part of it is because the it's the it's the final segment and it's the closest to dawn and so the way we see the light slowly change it's it's my favorite time it's so quiet and it's it's winter time and the the deadening effects of the snow on the ground and the fact that no one is awake except for these men they're almost on the earth alone it enhances that, you know, so, uh, I mean, the cabs, as you said earlier, are, are, you know, they're places of transit to begin with. They mm-hmm. are, they are kind of these, if these ephemeral spaces that these places that exist between other places, right? right? They are, we are only in them briefly. They, uh, you know, they, they aren't meant to kind of stay with us. Um, and then, yes, as you say, like that, that shifting toward dawn, toward the morning light coming, uh, uh, only enhances that kind of otherworldliness, right? Or that kind of sense of being in a transitional place that is not so much a place in and of itself but just a time and place between other times and places yeah and you know when you think about the the city that they travel through it's the most or at least rather um kind of stereotypically urban looking space it's helsinki right yeah and obviously i don't know the the population density (laughs) of finland's capital city but it doesn't look like the other cities that we've seen so far in any way you know both in the number of you know lights we see or the the types of businesses so it's it's you know it's tangibly different but also the way this vignette like folded me in, it starts with this kind of, you know, ludicrous scene of Mika driving around and around this statue in a circle. And yes. then when he goes to pick up these three just stupidly drunk dudes, there's this money of like moment of like very funny physical comedy where the dudes are all falling asleep, kind of balancing on each other. And when the two on the end step away, the guy in the middle, their friend Aki just kind of, you know, falls to the ground. Um, and then, you know, at the very end, there's a kind of return to that kind of, you know, almost puppet-like kind of physical comedy. Um, but because of the the deep sadness that's not weeping and, you know, gnashing of teeth, um, but nevertheless, this kind of deep sadness, it reminded me of like a Samuel Beckett play. It just, it felt very European in the way that it kind of said like, this is life and it is absurd and it... It is what it is, you know, just like a, it just, it is what it is. And so I had the fewest amount of notes. Like I, I wrote the least in this segment because I was so just captivated. Like I was, I was in that scene. I I don't know why, like emotionally it hit other than to, yeah, speak to like, you know, when it took place and, and the way that these men, you know, kind of existed in this, this very kind of theatrical space, like, like puppets in a way. Yeah. And what I uh, what I appreciated about it as well is that is it so the the men uh in you know in the cab uh, Mika and as well as the other two passengers uh Aki's friends they all sort of end up kind of dismissing Aki's 
troubles, right? right? They they kind of end up like being like, oh, you know, Mika, yes, your story is so sad. Yes, Aki, you know, what is Aki complaining about? He has yeah. nothing to complain about. <laughs> right. And and they, you know, ultimately like Aki just gets left uh, yeah, on near home, like on the side of the road. And then and just as like dawn is happening, and yet we you know, we the 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 viewer, we stay with Aki. Like right. we, the 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 cab drives off, his friends walk off, and we just stay there with Aki. And to me, that is again the film. You know, not unlike what it does when it stays with Helmut for a bit after he drives off yeah. and is alone again. It is again the film asserting, like, look, Aki is worthy of compassion. He is worthy of acknowledgement, right? His experiences yeah. are valid, even as the other people don't really acknowledge that uh, the film does. And, and yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I just, I really, I appreciate that so much. Me too. Me too. Yeah. Well, we have spoken a lot about yes. this, this film, but it is now time to, to wrap up our discussion of Night on Earth with one of my favorite segments in which we pair this week's film with another film that we think offers an interesting parallel. Uh, so I want you to allow Carol and I to use our vast cinematic knowledge <laughs> to tempt your taste buds into watching a movie that we think pairs nicely with Night on yeah. Earth, like a fava beans and a nice kid. <laughs> Let us be your sommeliers. Carol, do you have a film you would like to pair with Night on Earth? I do, I do. You know, one thing I, I love about Night on Earth is that it, it it's intrinsically saying about um, these drivers, these laborers, you know, that, um, that their work is, has value. They, they, they have value. They, you know, that these, these, these jobs that some may kind of look down on or, or whatever, like this film does not do that. This film, uh, uh, treasures the, 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 I think the working people. And so it, um, made me think of a film, it's a, a 2012 film that I absolutely loved. And it is, to be clear, it is very, very much in, you know, uh, it's a less, it's a little less maybe quirky. Um, it's not Jarmuschian, but it is very much paced at the, the pace, the rhythm of, of life, of a slow, you know, slow, but believable kind of life. Um, it's an Austrian, I guess, Austrian-American film called Museum Hours. And this film is, you know, similar to keep with the theme of like kind of observing and acknowledging the value in even in, in different kinds of work. This is a film that focuses largely on a, a man named Johan, who's probably I, I'd say he's probably in his, you know, early mid 60s or something. And his job, like what he does at this point in his life, he's had so many jobs throughout his life, but what he does at this point in his life is he just, he works as a guard at this uh, art museum in Vienna. And, um, you know, the film, uh, and he, he ends up developing a kind of connection, a friendship with a woman from, I, I believe from America, who is in the city because a friend of hers is is sick and so she's visiting Vienna. And, you know, they, they strike up this kind of unlikely uh, uh, friendship. But, um, you know, it's it's similar to Night on Earth. It's a film that's, that's very much rooted in, like, a workplace. Um, it's very much about, like, a person's work and the value in their, in their life and their life experience as they do that work. 
And um, I just found it uh, an utterly, utterly captivating uh, film. Uh, so Museum Hours, it's been on and off of Netflix. I don't know if it's available there uh, currently, but um, if you enjoy these kinds of films that are very observant about their characters, that really take their time, um, uh, I highly recommend Museum Hours. I am so excited. I have never heard of this film, and I am so excited to check it out. Um, so this is what the Samuvier can do for you people. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I would never have gone this deep into the wine cellar. So I'm, I'm excited about this. Um, my pairing for Night on Earth is the movie that I thought we were watching, True Stories. Ah. So this is, <laughs> True Stories comes out in 1986. It's actually directed right. by David Byrne, David, uh, famously of Talking Heads. Um, so uh, just reading real quick the, the tagline from IMDb. A small but growing Texas town filled with strange and musical characters celebrates a sesquicentennial and converge on a local parade and talent show. That doesn't give you any kind of a sense of the weirdness of this film, but as a as a if young, you have any sense of David of David Byrne's artistic output whatsoever, yeah, I I think you you know you know that it's not going to be a conventional exactly uh, uh, yeah <laughs> exactly. And I just I remember watching this as a kid, and so I assume it must have been on like HBO or something because ain't no way my parents took me to see True Stories at the theater, and there's no way like I would have heard of it and spent my hard earned Kool Aid money on this at the Frontier Mall, you know, going to see this. So I assume it was on HBO at some point. But I do remember it blowing my mind because I didn't know that movies could be like this. Um, I was still very far from being um, the sort of person who could say, like, you know, I I like what's happening, you know, but just the fact that it kind of opened me up to the fact that that there were people doing different kinds of things in films, things that perhaps you couldn't expect. and that, you know, you you didn't have to do what was expected of you, yes. you know, um, yes. to still make art. And, I, you know, I knew who David Byrne was. I mean, I wasn't a, a Talking Heads fan particularly, but I knew who he was. And so it was also a revelation to me. This sounds so, you know, ridiculous. But remember, I was a child. I didn't know that you could do more than one thing. Like I knew he was a musician. And so the fact that he directed a film and acted in a film... I was like, oh, I didn't I didn't know you could do that. Like, literally, I didn't know you could be talented in more than one area. I didn't know that you could say things in more than one way. So I'm encouraging people, check out True Stories. <laughs> it is the film that, for some reason, I conflated with Night on Earth and thought we were watching <laughs> this week. Um, but it is worth watching in its own right. So there you go. Nice. All right. Nice. So, Carol, it is now time for us to render our verdicts on this film using... My Little Brother's patented 100-star scale. Now, folks, as you will recall from round one, Carol and I employ the clearly superior 100-star scale to rate these flicks, as five stars simply doesn't allow for enough nuance, at least according to my <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes-loving younger brother. What's the difference between a five-star and a four-star? One star? That doesn't tell me nothing. That don't tell me nothing at all. I hear your arguments out there. Oh, well, it makes sense. There's a mathematical equation. I don't like it. I need it graded. Rotten Tomatoes has it nearly perfect. I know a 98% movie is awesome. I'm going to go watch it. I know a 65%, I'm going to save my money and bootleg it. 
So, uh, and just so you know, after we rate the films that we watch, we update a list of all of our ratings in a document you can find in the podcast description. So, Carol, where do you rank Night on Earth? You know, I just have such a fondness for this film's uh, uh, warmth towards its characters, its perspective on human experience, its ways of trying to kind of build connections and and make us, I think, um, empathize with people of of different um, backgrounds, you know, different uh, cities, countries, uh, and everything, and... um, uh yeah, I uh I think it's a, I think it's a it's a it's a small treasure of a film. Um I'm going to give it 85 stars. Right on. Um I will be left with the image of <clears throat> Isaac de Boncole's face lit by that lustrous light for so long like I can just it, it was indelibly stamped on my mind. Um and yeah, I'm just very glad that I got to <laughs> reconnect with this film and got to see some favorites like Giancarlo Esposito. I'm giving this a 89 stars. All right. All yeah. right. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, Ebony, now it's the moment that I've been waiting for the entire show with much anticipation and excitement. When we come back for next week's episode of Cinema Ball... What movie will we be discussing? What's next on What's next on the Cinema Ball docket? <laughs> okay, I just want to say to our audience, like if you haven't gotten a sense yet of who Carolyn Pettit is as a, as a film critic, as a viewer, and who I am as a film critic and as a viewer, this this round is really going to hammer that home for you. So we go from Night on Earth. I am linking via Tom Waits oh, in the soundtrack on Night on Earth to Tom Waits the actor in the 1992 gothic horror classic Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh my God. That is going to be... I have such fondness for this Boogle House film. Yes. And there is so much to talk about when it... like. Woo, oh. boy, it's particularly when it comes to gender, you know, both from the yes. original source material, but also this film's treatment of it, right? Plus, oh. y'all know how I love to talk about horror and like, you know, kind of, you know, horror adjacent shit. But really, this film has a, like, will always hold a place in my heart because, um, so I go to church and I go to a black church. Carol, one yeah. Easter Sunday, uh, if I'm lying, I'm flying. One Easter Sunday. A white dude was in church service. Again, I go to a black church. Yes. He was dressed like Gary Oldman. No. Yeah. You know when he comes to to London and he's got that gray suit and the gray top hat and the glasses and whatever? So my church is packed out at Easter. Like, it's a full house. So he's just in the middle of an aisle, you know, and he was fine. Like, he wasn't showing out. He wasn't doing anything. But he was straight up in... Gary Oldman as as Count Black cosplay in the middle of my black ass church on an Easter Sunday. This happened about 10 years ago. I've never recovered. And so this film, I'm never, ever going to want to stop watching it just to remind me of that moment. So, you know, I, I don't know if I'm really looking, I mean, I'm not, not looking forward to watching it, Mm -hmm. but I'm, but I'm really looking forward to to talking about it. And for a moment, as you were 
you know, when you said linked to Tom Waits, the actor, mm-hmm. and you started saying 1990, I was like, oh, God, are we going to watch, are we going to watch Mystery Men? Are we going to watch... <laughs> Where, with Ben Stiller as like Mr. Angry and uh, and and uh, Ginny and Garofalo as the bowler and like that. You know what? I uh, hadn't even thought of going that way. My initial choice yeah. was gonna be to link it through uh, link not on Earth through Giancarlo Esposito to the 1994 mm. film Fresh, which is ah. fucking amazing. So if y'all haven't seen that film, do yourselves a favor. It will leave you absolutely breathless. Just am- amazing film. So anyways, right. that's, that's what's going on. That is going to do it for us this week, folks. Thank you so much to Simplecast, which hosts both this podcast and our flagship show, Feminist Frequency Radio. Thanks also to our amazing producer, Sarah Norales, who really keeps the wheels on this thing. But most of all, thanks to all of you who listen to us every week. If you like this show, why not leave us a review and tell your friends about the hijinks we get up to over here when Anita's not around. All right, we'll see you back here next week for another jaw-dropping round of Cinema Ball. Bye. Later, y'all.